Tuesday, April 26th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the U.S. pledges more aid to Ukraine as President Joe Biden names ambassador to Kiev. The meetings with Ukraine's President Zelensky and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said this as well. They were described as productive, as engaging, and with good vibe. Number of children facing severe drought across the Horn of Africa jumps to 40% in two months. So this is a three-year drought, three years of failed rains, and the worry is that the fourth year is going to fail as well. So children are really teetering on the brink. And a judge holds former President Donald Trump in contempt for failing to respond to a subpoena. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says Russia is failing in its war aims during a visit to Ukraine. The trip by Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to Ukraine's capital was the highest-level American visit to Kyiv since Russia invaded in late February. Blinken and Austin told Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky the U.S. would provide more than $300 million in foreign military financing and had approved a $165 million sale of ammunition. These, as President Joe Biden announced his nomination of veteran diplomat Bridget Brink to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. For more, I spoke with VOA's National Security Correspondent, Jeff Seldon. The meetings with Ukraine's President Zelensky and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said this as well. They were described as productive, as engaging, and with good vibe between the two sides, appreciation from the Ukrainians for what the U.S. has been trying to do, and admiration from the U.S. officials for what Ukraine has been able to do. One of the more significant quotes coming after this meeting, uh, Secretary Blinken talking to reporters after returning from Kyiv. He said, when it comes to Russia's war aims, Russia is failing, Ukraine is succeeding. And that's significant given the amount of firepower, the amount of force that Russia had arrayed against Ukraine when the conflict began 61 days ago. What would you say to analysts who say this trip was rich in symbolism but does not pack that extra punch of real achievement, real intent? U.S. officials are saying that it was a, a substantive, a productive meeting during the trip. You know, Secretary Austin, afterwards speaking to reporters, said that they talked about training, talked about finding more ways to get the Ukrainian military the types of weaponry, the type of support they need as Russia has shifted the focus of the fight from coming in at three axes into Ukraine and trying to topple the government in Kiev and, and now focusing on the eastern part of Ukraine and on the Donbass. He said the Ukrainians need long-range fires. They want tanks. And he said, quote, we are doing everything that we can to get them the types of support, the types of artillery and munitions that will be effective. And there's going to be another meeting on Tuesday following his visit to Kiev. Secretary of Defense Austin is heading to Germany, Ramstein Air Force Base, where he's going to be meeting with military uh, leaders, uh, ministers of defense, chiefs of defense from various U.S. allies. And they're going to talk about some of the additional aid that, that can be given to Ukraine as this new part of the fight in, in the focus in eastern Ukraine builds. And as part of that already, U.S. officials said during the visit on Monday that Secretary Austin and Secretary Blinken pledged another $713 million in new assistance for Ukraine. That includes, according to the officials, about another $322 million in military assistance, which means that uh, since the conflict began, the U.S. has now pledged or delivered on almost $4 billion in military assistance. And the results on the ground, the fact that Russia has not succeeded 
the fact that uh, British intelligence assessments say about 25% of the combat units that Russia had a raid against Ukraine and sent into Ukraine are now non-effective. Secretary Austin made a cryptic comment about wanting to see the Russian military diminished. Or are there facts on the ground to show that the once feared Russian military may not be as effective as people thought they were? There's a lot of discussion going on about whether or not the U.S. and other Western countries overestimated the abilities of of the Russian forces or whether it was an underestimation of of Ukraine's capacity to defend against Russia. There are a number of U.S. officials have talked about the fact, a number of Western officials have talked about the fact that some of the supply lines, some of the logistics that Russia really needed to be in place and to be effective for them to have any success simply haven't worked, haven't been there. But as far as Secretary Austin's comments, he said, quote, we want to see Ukraine remain a sovereign country. And he also said, quote, we want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things that it has done in invading Ukraine. And while there's a bit of bravado in that, while it seems like a very stark, very significant comment, it's also very much in line with what U.S. officials have been saying all along. That's VOS National Security Correspondent Jeff Selden speaking with me from Washington, D.C. Russia's first deputy permanent representative to the United Nations, Dmitry Polyansky, said on Monday that there is no point in having a ceasefire in Ukraine at this stage. This is because Kyiv, in his view, is likely to use it as an opportunity to try to discredit Russia. His statement comes after Kyiv denied reaching an agreement with Moscow over a humanitarian corridor for civilians from a steel plant in the southern city of Mariupol. Kyiv said the United Nations should be, quote, the initiator and guarantor, unquote, of any such deal. Polyansky said a ceasefire would only, quote, be an opportunity for Ukrainian forces to regroup and stage more provocations, unquote. He said Russia had not struck any residential areas in Ukraine's Black Sea port city of Odessa. Ukraine's Southern Air Command on Saturday said two missiles struck a military facility and two residential buildings there. U.S. Secretary General Antonio Guterres met with President Tayyip Erdogan in Ankara Monday. The meeting came ahead of a planned visit to Ukraine and Russia in an attempt to end the Ukrainian conflict. Ankara has good relations with both Kiev and Moscow, and Guterres' visit underscores its importance in peace efforts. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Guterres was heading to Kiev and then Moscow is part of shuttle diplomacy efforts to end the Ukrainian conflict. Neither Guterres nor Erdogan spoke to the media after their talks in the Turkish capital. Both issued statements. The UN chief's office recognized and praised Turkish efforts to end the conflict, while the Turkish presidency said it remained committed to end the fighting. Erdogan has maintained good relations with both Ukrainian and Russian leaders and has sought to mediate the conflict. Samuel Bendit is a Russia analyst at the Center for Naval Analysis, Russia's study program, a U.S. research organization. He says Ankara has successfully carved out an important role. Turkey is a significant actor here because the Russian president is talking, is, is talking to the Turkish president, the Ukrainian president is talking is, is talking to the Turkish president. So uh, Turkey is involved, it is in the know, and uh, it could be potentially a an important mediator if both sides feel it is time f- for Turkey to step up into that role. On Sunday, Erdogan spoke with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. 
In a statement after the talks, Erdogan said he would continue efforts to arrange with Moscow for civilians to leave the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol, as well as continuing wider diplomatic efforts to end the conflict. Turkey has hosted Russian and Ukrainian foreign minister talks and most recently delegations of the warring parties. Asla Aydintashbash, a senior fellow of the European Council, says Ankara has a vested interest in ending the Ukrainian conflict. Russia controls Turkey's southern flank because of its presence in Syria. So, and it has increased its leverage in the east in the Caucasus. So now if they take over Ukraine, uh, Turkey will effectively be surrounded by Russia. And I think that uh, people have enough of a historical memory to know that that's not a good uh, strategic place to end up with for Turkey. Some analysts say that Erdogan's role in peace efforts has enhanced the Turkish president's international standing after he faced growing isolation among Western allies. On Saturday, Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu said talks between the Russian and Ukrainian representatives were continuing and Turkey was ready to host a summit between Putin and Zelensky if there was significant progress. However, the Turkish top diplomat tempered expectations, admitting prospects of a breakthrough were low. As Moscow escalates its military offensive in Ukraine, observers say Putin appears to be showing little interest in peace efforts. Doreen Jones of VOA News. Istanbul. As nations mark World Malaria Day Monday, the World Health Organization recommends the expanded use of the first malaria vaccine, calling it a potential game changer in the fight against the disease. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Malaria is a preventable, treatable disease. Yet every year, malaria sickens more than 200 million people and kills more than 600,000. Most of these deaths, nearly half a million, are among young children in Africa. That means every 60 seconds, a child dies of malaria. Despite this bleak news, the outlook for malaria control is promising, thanks to the development of the world's first malaria vaccine. The World Health Organization calls the achievement a historic breakthrough for science. A pilot program was started in 2019 in Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi. Since then, the World Health Organization reports more than a million children in the three countries have received the malaria vaccine. Mary Hamill is head of WHO's malaria vaccine implementation program. She says the two-year pilot program has shown the vaccine is safe, feasible to deliver and reduce this deadly severe malaria. We saw a 30% drop in children being brought to the hospitals with deadly severe malaria. And we also saw almost a 10% reduction in all-cause child mortality. If the, the vaccine is widely deployed, it's estimated that it could save an additional 40 to 80,000 child lives each year. WHO reports Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, will provide more than $155 million to support expanded introduction of the malaria vaccine for Gavi-eligible countries in sub-Saharan Africa. The vaccine against malaria was under development before the COVID-19 vaccine was produced. Hamill says WHO has learned a lot of lessons from that effort, which could be used in the development of future malaria vaccines. You know, there's uh, that there have been new platforms that came forward with the COVID vaccine, including the mRNA platform. And now the developers of uh, one of the mRNA vac vaccines 
is looking forward to developing a, uh, a malaria vaccine using that same platform. Last July, BioNTech, manufacturer of the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine, announced it wants to build on that success by developing a malaria vaccine using mRNA technology. The pharmaceutical company says it aims to start clinical trials by the end of this year. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The number of children facing severe drought across the Horn of Africa has jumped 40% in just two months. UNICEF spokesperson Marlene Jensen in Nairobi tells VOA Carol Van Dam the drought is driven by the loss of cattle, the loss of crops, and higher prices, which has caused severe acute malnutrition among more than 1.7 million children. So this is a three-year drought, three years of failed rains, and the worry is that the fourth year is going to fail as well. So children are really teetering on the brink, and so are their families. So we can see that the needs are becoming increasingly dire. Children running out of food, nutrition, clean water, and people starting to move to try and find that, especially because their cattle have been lost to the drought. If you were to put our audience in the place of these kinds of families you're talking about, what are they doing? Are they having to leave their huts for areas where there's more rainfall, or what are they doing? So I was in Somalia uh, some weeks ago, and basically the story we're hearing from families is that they were, they're doing okay years ago because they had the cattle, um, they could support their children, they had crops, they were going about their lives and they had an income. And then three years, there's a slow moving oncoming disaster, if you will, three years of no rain. And we can see, I think it's about 2 million animals that have died already. People were telling us that, you know, they had 150 cattle, then they lost 50, they lost another 20. One woman said that she had been able to sell 20 and the rest had died. And then she was saying that they basically saw other other people moving. So she grabbed her five children, one remaining donkey, and they moved towards a place called Dolo in Somalia. That's right on the border of Ethiopia. And it was exactly what you're saying. They're chasing water. They're chasing a substance of where they can and uh, have a living and, and save their children. But the more people contrigating in one specific area and that's what we're told is that there was water when they got there but now because more and more people are coming in there isn't much more water that is a catastrophe what we're talking about too is it really is an impact of climate change the weather mm-hmm. pattern but then you add to that two years of COVID restrictions And this is an area of of conflict, of pockets of conflicts where people have already been insecure. And then add one more layer of the horror that we're seeing in Ukraine that's having the ripple effect. So you've got what? You've got climate change, COVID, conflict, the three C's, I guess. And and now this, and now the Ukraine war. That's Marlene Jensen, a spokesperson for UNICEF in Nairobi, speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. news, a New York judge has found former President Donald Trump in contempt of court for failing to adequately respond to a subpoena issued by the state's attorney general as part of a civil investigation into his business dealings. Judge Arthur Engeron on Monday ordered Trump to pay a fine of $10,000 per day. New York City Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, had asked for the court to hold Trump in contempt 
after he missed a March 31st court-imposed deadline to turn over documents. Trump, a Republican, had been fighting James in court over investigations, which he has called a politically motivated court, which hunt unquote. Trump's spokespeople did not immediately respond to a request for comment. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. Mali's Prime Minister says Bamako will renew the UN support mission, even as UN efforts to investigate alleged human rights abuses are denied by the country's military government. Anna Risenberg reports from the Malian capital. The town of Mora was the site of a military operation in which witnesses say the Malian army and foreign soldiers summarily executed hundreds of civilians. Prime Minister Shogel Kokola Maiga says he recognizes the hesitancy that some countries have expressed in continuing to contribute troops to the UN mission in Mali. His speech was posted on state TV station ORTM's Facebook page. He says the renewal of MINUSMA's mandate is expected in June 2022, and there should not be a significant change in the mandate, even though some countries that are contributing troops suggest they will reassess their level of participation. Several European military operations have been halted in Mali in recent months, including the Takuba Task Force, the European Union Training Mission, and France's Operation Barkine, following tensions with Mali's government and accusations that Mali's forces are working with Russian mercenaries employed by the Wagner Group. Several European countries contribute troops to MINUSMA. The announcement comes as the UN has been continually denied access to investigate human rights abuse allegations in the village of Mora. In March, there were several reports of Malian and foreign soldiers, presumed to be Russian mercenaries, carrying out summary executions of civilians in Mora, in what Human Rights Watch called the worst single atrocity reported in Mali's decade-long armed conflict. Aliuntin, an independent UN expert on human rights in Mali, released a statement calling for a prompt investigation. Using a messaging app from Senegal, he expressed optimism at MAGA's announcement, but said the tension between France and Russia playing out in Mali is not conducive to resolving Mali's security crisis. If we have, he says, a space of polarization, of tension between the big powers, I don't think this is good for Mali, not for all of the Sahel, not even for all Africans. Andrew Leibovich is a Sahel analyst at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Speaking from New York via a messaging app, he said that MINUSMA's mission is conflicted. There's a possible contradiction here where MINUSMA is supposed to be supporting the transitional government, supporting the state, but also potentially investigating the state and, uh, and protecting civilians in some cases from the state. And this is something that uh, the mission is going to struggle to deal with frankly, uh, especially if the current pattern of alleged human rights abuses continues. MINUSMA also expressed concern about recent human rights abuse allegations in Hombardy, saying in a tweet that it has the intention of visiting the scene soon. Both Teen and Leibovitch say it's rare or unheard of for the Malian government to refuse to grant UN investigators access to a site. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. During Ramadan, communal iftars or breaking of fast for Muslims in mosques but since the coronavirus pandemic began, drive through food distributions have become popular. VOA's Pfizer Bukhari takes us behind the scenes at one of Virginia's Islamic centers, where a daily drive through iftar for roughly 800 people is organized. 
Darren Noor Islamic Community Center in Manassas, Virginia, hosts a daily drive-through iftar for about 800 fasting Muslims. Preparing meals for that many hungry worshippers demands the participation of a group of volunteers who dedicate their time and energy to assisting those in need. Each day's menu is different. Local school students volunteer to assist with boxing the meals once they are prepared. Student volunteers say that helping not only earns them academic credits, but it also brings them joy. Breaking fast together during Ramadan, according to other volunteers, is the traditional approach. Organizers of the drive through iftar say pandemic has been the reason for distributing food like this. Hundreds of Muslims from all walks of life receive iftar meals every day at this Islamic center, which is sponsored by public donations and sponsors. Faisal Bukhari, VOA News, Manassas, Virginia. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chinero in washington wishing you a great day Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Nearly two months into Vladimir Putin's brutal and unjustified full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and already the impacts of the war are being felt far beyond Ukraine's borders. Global food security in particular is increasingly at risk. Ukraine and Russia are both major agricultural producers, said Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman at a meeting of the U.N. Security Council. 30% of the world's wheat exports typically come from the Black Sea region, as does 20% of the world's corn and 75% of sunflower oil. The Russian Navy is blocking access to Ukraine's ports, reportedly preventing dozens of ships carrying food for the world market from reaching the Mediterranean, said Deputy Secretary Sherman. Russia has also bombed at least three civilian commercial ships sailing from Ukraine. Russian missiles and bombs have damaged and destroyed Ukrainian airports, rail lines, train stations, and highways that are critical for getting humanitarian aid to those who need it and for exporting wheat, corn, and other commodities. According to Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuliba, Russia is actively targeting grain silos and food storage facilities, said Deputy Secretary Sherman. All of these actions by Russia are creating a food crisis in Ukraine and well beyond Ukraine's borders. Already food prices are skyrocketing and low and in middle-income countries as Russia chokes off Ukrainian exports. Across the Middle East and Africa, already high prices for staple commodities, including wheat, have risen between 20 and 50% so far this year.
We are particularly concerned about countries which rely heavily on Ukrainian imports to feed their populations, said Deputy Secretary Sherman. The World Food Program is already feeding 138 million people in more than 80 countries, from Ethiopia to Afghanistan, South Sudan to Yemen, Nigeria to Syria. But now, Putin's war is driving up the cost of providing food assistance, and the Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO, estimates that as many as 13 million more people worldwide may be pushed into food insecurity as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ultimately, the only way to end this humanitarian catastrophe is through a durable ceasefire and the complete withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukrainian territory and away from Ukraine's borders, said Deputy Secretary Sherman. That decision lies with one man and one man only. Vladimir Putin started this war. He created this global food crisis, and he is the one who can stop it. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Washington!